Glad to be with you this morning. Uh, some of you asked me on the way in about my shoes, my funky kicks. I left my dress shoes in my bedroom when we came for a weekend away at the Wildcatter. And so I am preaching in Pumas this morning. But I've seen some of the funky pants that your pastor wears, and so I don't feel so self-conscious. I just want to let you know, though, that we are so grateful for you. I have been coming to the Simeon Trust workshops here now for three years, been involved in Simeon Trust for a number of years beyond that. I've brought into this building men from my own church who were once not elders, but are now elders and faithful teachers and preachers of God's word. There are men in my church that have accompanied me and have been served by you, by the labors that you've put in, by the money that you've devoted by the time that you've taken off of work that are godly disciple makers in our church. And so we are grateful for Redeemer Church. We're grateful for the saints at this church. You have had no small part in building us up that we might become mature in Christ. And so we're very, very grateful for you. I've lived in Denton now for more than 20 years. It's an artsy, musical, somewhat purple town, as many of you know. It's obsessed with craft coffee. And all that really means is overpriced. $4 cups of coffee notwithstanding, there is something to the craft, I think. Over time, I've come to be something of a bit of a coffee snob myself. How exactly do you become a coffee snob? Well, you know that you become a coffee snob when coffee stops tasting just like mere coffee. It has different flavors from the initial sip all the way to the lingering aftertaste. You start using words like notes to describe your coffee. You might say something like, hmm, this Ethiopian light roast has notes of lemon tart, raw honey, and floral nectar. I'm sure many of you have said things just like that. So when my father-in-law comes in town and he mixes his instant Folgers coffee, I just can't do it. That may be some of you, and that's okay. I entrust your sanctification to the Lord. We all have indwelling sin that we've got to deal with. That's okay. But I remember I began drinking coffee as a means to an end. Many of you know what I mean. It's that bitter shot of caffeine to get you through a long day or a late night. But once I learned more about it, about different origins and about different flavor profiles, I stopped sipping sipping coffee and I began to savor it. Well, if I were to ask you, what's the flavor of Christianity? How would you answer? What are the notes that make us more than mere sippers, but savorers of Christ? Beloved, I want to submit to you this morning that the flavor of Christianity is joy. Consider God's angelic announcement at Christ's birth. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. When real people living real lives filled with real life problems demonstrate great joy, it's living proof that Christ is powerful to save and change sinners. And so I want you to hear me correctly. The gospel doesn't say, don't worry, be happy. Anyone with one foot in the real world knows that we live in a sad world filled with grief, filled with broken hearts and broken homes, stillborn babies and stage four diagnoses, corrupt governments and cultural decay. And all of that is to say nothing of our own wearisome fight against indwelling sin or of being hated by a world that hates our Savior. And all of this and more, brothers and sisters, what distinguishes Christianity from the world is not that our non-Christian friends grieve and we don't. No, what makes Christians distinct is that when we grieve, we do so with hope. We do so with joy. Because that's what the gospel gives. Hope leading to joy, even in the most bitter of circumstances. Proverbs 10.28, the hope of the righteous brings joy. You may, be remem- you may remember that the Apostle Peter called it joy inexpressible, filled with glory. Our passage this morning, Isaiah 61, promises the exact same. They shall have everlasting 
joy. And all of this hints, I think, at the big idea of our passage. That Christ frees us from sin that we might make God known and have joy in him forever. So if you're a note taker, one of those type A personalities, and you missed any of those words, I'm going to say this again just for you. It's my whole sermon in one sentence. Christ frees us from sin that we might make God known and have joy in him forever. And we're going to see this big idea emerge in three parts in Isaiah 61. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 3, Christ's liberating mission. Then in verses 4 through 9 is those who have been set free in Christ, we're going to consider our priestly portion. Our priestly portion. Finally, in verses 10 and 11, it calls us to an enjoyable worship. Christ's liberating mission, our priestly portion, and our enjoyable worship. Brothers and sisters, with all of that in mind, would you stand with me now for the public reading of God's Holy word, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison of those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And to comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God, and you shall eat the wealth of the nations. And in their glory you shall boast. No, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they will possess a double portion, and they shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring. The Lord is blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. And he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. As the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Isaiah never tells us who the speaker is in these opening verses, but he gives us plenty of clues throughout his book. In chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah introduces to us a future Messiah who's going to reign on David's throne forever. But then in the second half of the book, beginning in chapter 40, Isaiah foretells of the coming of God's suffering servant, one who will save his people from their sins. Now here at the end of the book, especially here in the first few verses of chapter 61, he reveals that this future king... And this suffering servant aren't two different figures at all. No, they are the one and same Messiah. And so the voice that we hear in the opening verses is the sure and tender voice of God's son to his church. He says in verse one, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. 
Well, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord anoints certain people with supernatural wisdom and capacity. You may remember that it was true of Joseph in Genesis, with all of those temple craftsmen in the book of Exodus, with Moses in the book of Numbers. In fact, even through the book of Isaiah, he repeatedly associates God's Spirit with the saving work of God's servant. So the servant is saying here in verse 1 that his mission is ultimately going to be accomplished in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us what his mission is in the third line of verse 1. Look there with me. It says here that he is sent to bring good news. That is, he's sent to bring the gospel. You heard me say just a moment ago that these words are Jesus' words. And we know that's the case because Jesus is going to cite this verse in Matthew chapter 11 to strengthen the shaky faith of John the Baptist right there on the eve of John's death. He's going to say in that part of the gospel, John, because you've lived for me, you will not die in vain. I am the Christ. God's word has been fulfilled in my ministry. Good news has been preached To the poor. These words are the words of Jesus. But now that's a loaded statement. Good news preached to the poor. What does that mean? As God's promised king. Who is also God's suffering servant. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just the preacher of good news. He is the good news. In verse 3 look at. He doesn't just announce good things. He's the one who gives the good things he announces. But ultimately, who is this good news for? Verse 1 tells us that it is good news to the poor. That word poor isn't limited to the financial or the material realm. It speaks of anyone who's distressed for any reason, especially because of sin. And who lack the necessary resources to help themselves. They are the bound captives talked about at the end of verse 1. They're the mourners in verses 2 and 3. You may recall that Jesus preached the same message centuries later. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they are the ones who will be comforted. So, beloved, I wonder if you've known this kind of poverty. King David knew this poverty. He knew what it was to be be poor. Just listen to his groaning in Psalm 25. He prays, turn to me and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes. And with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. For I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Lonely, afflicted, distressed, troubled, sinful, hated. If anyone in here says, that's me, then the Lord Jesus Christ says, oh, if I got got good news for you. And that good news begins to be teased out in the action words at the end of verse 1 and in verses 2 and 3. He says, first of all, that he's sent. Sent to do what? Verse 1, to bind up broken hearts. And at the end of verse 1, to proclaim liberty. He says in verse 2 that he's been sent to proclaim favor and to comfort. And then in verse 3, he has been sent to give gladness. Take each one of those one by one. We do ourselves lots of spiritual good just by considering each one of them. First in verse 1, Christ was sent, he says, to bind up the brokenhearted. That same Hebrew word translated to bind was used by Isaiah all the way back in chapter 1 to describe Israel's unbound, oozing wounds inflicted by their own sin. Likewise, if we want to get a picture of what's being talked about here, The Hebrew word translated brokenhearted is also used elsewhere, for instance, in Proverbs 6, to to refer to one that is broken beyond repair. So you and I, when we see that he's been sent to bind up the brokenhearted, we might think that what he's talking about is to make sad people unsad. But he means so much more than that. 
What he means in the picture that's being painted is one who is lying on the ground with gaping wounds, bleeding out. And as a result of their fatal wounds, they are so dispirited that they have no more will to go on and they have no resources by which to help or to save themselves. Jesus says, those are the ones, spiritually speaking, for whom I have been sent. Those who cannot help themselves. Those who have been left as good as dead because of sin. Those are the ones that I have come to bind up. It's interesting though, because as Isaiah's preaching ministry unfolds throughout his book, we learn that God's servant is ultimately qualified to bind up our wounds because he was wounded for us. That's what Isaiah explains in Isaiah 53. That's what, without any previous planning on my part, that's what was prayed and confessed by us in the assurance of pardon earlier this morning. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Brothers and sisters, only a wounded Savior can save and heal wounded sinners. Nothing can ultimately bind our broken hearts but his bloody cross. Well, that atoning work, that work of Christ is implied in his twofold proclamation at the end of verse one and in verse two. Notice how he was sent, first of all, to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's like a king announcing amnesty to his political prisoners. Jesus's mission is to proclaim pardon for sinners. And that proclamation of liberty in verse one, well, that helps us make sense of the second proclamation in verse two. It's there that we see he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. What does that mean? Well, God's old covenant law to Israel commanded a year of jubilee. Every 50th year, the nation had to take a whole year off of work. They had to cancel everyone's debts and return all property back to its original owners. The only work that Israel was allowed to do during jubilee was the work of proclamation. Leviticus 25, for a whole year, they were to proclaim liberty throughout the land. That was their job. They were all preachers for one year. What they were preaching was liberty. But verse 4, now if you look at that, tells us that the main purpose for Israel's holiday, or verse 3 rather, was ultimately to become a coming soon sign for a greater jubilee in Jesus Christ. The true Israel, the one who proclaims liberty to his people forever. You may recall how Jesus said in John 8, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They are bound captives. But if the son sets you free, then you are free indeed. That's liberty to the captives. The Apostle Paul echoed this good news when he wrote, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. And so consider for just a minute, Paul's mind-bending logic. Why did Christ set us free? Answer, so we'd be free. I'll let that one keep you up tonight. Christ has set us free for freedom. That you and I would no longer be bound, but that we would be free in him. Well, if you're in Christ, you're not only been freed from the penalty of sin. No, brothers and sisters, you have been freed from the very power of sin in your life. It is, it does not own you anymore. It doesn't command you. It doesn't possess you. But one day when Christ returns, you're going to be free, not only from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, those have already been taken away. You're going to be free from the very presence of sin forever. So for a Christian, For you and I, for the members of Christ's church, Jubilee isn't a a once every 50 years holiday. It is our position. It's the most fundamental spiritual reality to those who are in Christ Jesus. Every minute of every day because we are in Christ and he is our true and better Jubilee. But that's not all he proclaims. He keeps on preaching. Verse 2. Alongside the year of favor, notice what he also proclaims. He proclaims the day of vengeance. What does that mean? 
Some of you may recall how in the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus begins his public ministry by applying Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 to himself. He stands up, he reads the scroll, and then he tells the crowd that in their hearing, scripture has been fulfilled. What's interesting is that he starts reading to the crowd at the beginning of the chapter, that is in chapter 61, verse 1. But he stops reading at the beginning of verse 2 to proclaim the year's the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus doesn't say anything about proclaiming the day of vengeance. So here's the question. Why the omission? Why did Jesus cut the sermon short? Well, I can assure you that it wasn't because Jesus was embarrassed by God's wrath like many Christians today. No, it's a matter of prophetic perspective. Because in verses 1 and 2, Isaiah saw Christ's whole mission at once. Liberty and vengeance side by side. But Jesus knew that his mission would ultimately come in two phases, liberty, then vengeance. In phase one, he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. He frees his people from slavery to sin by his perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, his his crowning ascension, and his enduring intercession by which he is able to save us to the uttermost. Phase one, brothers and sisters, phase one is not ultimately about divine vengeance. It's about divine patience leading to repentance. But phase two is coming soon with the return of the king. And that day will not only be a day of great comfort to afflicted saints, but it will be a holy terror to those who reject Christ and his gospel. So says the apostle Paul, second Thessalonians one. That when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what do you make of that? Have you considered that if you refuse Christ, that he is good to inflict his vengeance on you? Consider also that the day of vengeance, that day has not yet come. Phase two is not yet here. He has given you yet another day and another breath. And he was kind perhaps in God's providence to bring you here this morning so that you might hear maybe for the hundredth time, maybe for the thousandth time that Jesus Christ is good news for sinners like you. Friend, when you consider these things, what holds you back then? From throwing yourself on the mercy of Christ. He is speaking to you even now from his word. Oh, when you hear him speak, do not harden your heart as Israel did. Obey the gospel. Turn to Christ in faith and be saved. And consider how the good news in verse 3 can be true of you this morning. That Christ takes impoverished sinners... And he makes them enriched sons and daughters of the Most High God. Go ahead and scan that, would you? Scan verse 3. Take note of the repeated phrase, instead of. Instead of, instead of, instead of, instead of. He repeats it. Beauty instead of ashes. Gladness instead of mourning. Praise instead of despair and weariness. That all of those who were once brokenhearted and burned out, he says, will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. What is a mighty oak an image of? If it's not an image of vitality and stability and permanence and abundance. Some of you have oak trees in your yard. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's saying this is the kind of life that Christ imparts to his people. That Christ in me changes me into an oak of righteousness. J.C. Ryle said this about the stability of a Christian. He said Christ would have his people show that his grace is not a mere hothouse plant, which can only thrive under shelter, but a strong, hardy thing, which can flourish in every relation of life. 
Beloved, how can you grow these kinds of oaky roots so that when winds and storms come in your life, you stand firm? Like that man in Psalm 1 who's like a tree planted by streams of water. Beloved, be rooted in three ways. First, root yourself in Christ alone. This kind of strength, a strength that endures, a strength that perseveres in this life into the next, doesn't come ultimately in your own wisdom, in your own strength, in your own resources. It comes from the risen and reigning Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, you need to root yourself in Christ as a vine would root itself in a branch. Does that sound familiar? It's John 15. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Your life comes from me. Your fruitfulness comes from me. And so in all of those moments, when you're tempted to turn in on yourself, to rely on your own wisdom and your own strength and your own resources, stop in your tracks and turn and rest and abide in Christ. Secondly, root yourself In God's word, just as I know you in this church do sow it into your heart by reading it, singing it, praying it and hearing it preached. Third, root yourself in the church. The Bible teaches us that the word ministry of local churches is how God matures his people into the fullness of Christ so that you and I would not be tossed around like waves or carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or craftiness and deceitful schemes. Ephesians four. Fourth, root yourself in future hope. Remind yourselves and remind one another every day that this world is not your home. You are citizens of a kingdom that can't be shaken. See your trials in this life, not ultimately as God for forgetting you, but as God fitting you, fitting you for heaven by helping you to become more and more like Christ and to delight in the things today that you're going to be delighting in four trillion years from now. Finally, beloved, root yourself in the promises of verses four through nine. So we just considered Christ's liberating mission in verses 1 through 3. But now, beginning in verse 4 all the way through verse 9, we want to zoom in on our priestly portion. Look at how verse 4 teases out the theme of transformation from verse 3. Isaiah declares that what was destroyed is going to be rebuilt and that the devastations of generations are going to be repaired. That language at the end of verse 4, the devastations of many generations, that's covenant language in the Old Testament. Some of you may remember that if Israel broke their covenant with God, God promised in Exodus 34 to punish the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. And that's exactly what he did. Ultimately sending them out of the promised land and into exile. That's the whole reason that he sent prophets like Isaiah to preach the good news to them. That they might repent of their sin and return to God. But they refused. Well, Isaiah sees a vision of verse 4 of Jerusalem as a kind of pile of rubble. All of God's covenant curses have come true. But there's going to be a day when God will create for himself a new city. That's what we see here. A new and better Jerusalem. When the curses will be exhausted in Christ. Only His new Jerusalem won't be geographical. It'll be spiritual. It won't be populated ultimately by one nation. But look at verse 5. It's going to be populated by all nations. Long-time enemies of God's people will become co-laborers and friends in the Lord. In the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 2, those who were once far off will be brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 5 shows us the remarkable power of the gospel. What does the gospel do? It beats murderous swords into fruitful plowshares. It transforms ravenous wolves into tender shepherds. And it turns bitter foes into fellow farmers in God's field. So why are all these strangers and foreigners ultimately coming in God's city? What's bringing them in? Well, we see in verse 6 that God has given the entire city a priestly ministry. In the Bible, priests are mediators. They're mediators that represent 
God to man. And they represent man to God. In one direction, priests speak to God on behalf of the world. In the other direction, they speak to the world on behalf of God. Well, God's royal priesthood, as Peter calls us, is committed then to prayer and to proclamation. We pray for the nations and we preach to the nations. And the nations then bring in their wealth, that is converts born to God. But it gets even better. Look at verse 7. God's people are not only given a priestly ministry, but they're also given a great inheritance. Notice the instead of language again, just like we saw in verse 3. Instead of shame and dishonor, well, now there's honor. Instead of dispossession, this kingdom of priests will possess a double portion. In the Old Testament, a double portion was always the inheritance of the firstborn. It's interesting then that the Bible would later refer to Jesus Christ as the firstborn of creation. You realize that's not creation language as if there was ever a time where the son of God was not. It's kingdom language that is declared to be God's son, the rightful heir. Jesus is heir then Hebrews one heir of all things as the firstborn. He gets the double portion. Only here's where it gets really good, really good for you and me. The Bible also teaches, Romans 8, that you and I are co-heirs with Christ. His double portion is our portion. What belongs to him is given to us because we are in him. And so, is it any wonder then that this double portion in Christ, at the end of seven, this is all the good stuff. Is it any wonder then that they shall have everlasting joy. Everlasting joy from a double portion inheritance, having been united to Christ and sharing in his priestly ministry, whereby the nations bring their wealth into the church of converts born to God. And all of this joy, as we see in verses 8 and 9, are ultimately rooted in knowing and enjoying and glorifying God. It's knowing who he is. God's going to tell us who he is in verse 8. Verse 8 actually is notoriously difficult to translate. If you have an ESV translation as I read from, your Bible says, I the Lord love justice and I hate robbery and wrong. But that makes it sound like God has switched gears out of nowhere. It's like he threw it from drive into reverse and is now rebuking his people where he was once giving them good news of great hope in the verses that came before. How does that work? It seems a little out of context. There's probably a better way to translate this verse. And without getting all the Hebrew weeds, I agree with scholars that contend that verse eight likely reads more like this. I, the Lord love justice. I hate iniquity or rather I hate injustice. Well, if that's the case, if that's the way that we would translate it, then it becomes, I think, easier to understand what it is that Isaiah is preaching. God isn't ultimately rebuking his people. God is affirming his own character. He's saying on the one hand, this is who I am. I am the Lord who loves justice. And on the other hand, this is who I am not. I cannot commit injustice because I hate it. In other words, how can we, God's people, be sure about all of the promises that we just saw, beginning in verse 4, going all the way to verse 7? How do we know that God will make good on his promises? Because if God goes back on his covenant promises, he would be guilty of iniquity. He would be unjust. And God says, I hate injustice. He says, that's impossible. That God loves justice and he hates iniquity. So you and I, because God here has revealed to us who he is. We can trust that God will keep his word. Because to borrow the apostle Paul's word, even when we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So you and I, when we look at verses 8 and 9, we're able to see in verse 8, this is who our God is. And because this is who God is, I can take verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 to the bank. Because God cannot act unjustly. He cannot make a promise and break a promise. And he will not forget us. 
And then in verse 9, we see God's faithfulness playing out in two ways. First, Israel is going to have many spiritual offspring. But then second, Israel's offspring is going to be known among the nations. Some of you may recall that language of offspring and the nations harkens all the way back to the promise that God made to Abraham. That through his offspring, all of the nations would be blessed. All of those promises, the Apostle Paul later says, were fulfilled in Christ. He says in Galatians, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Well, how then are the promises of verses 4 through 9 good news to us? There's so many applications to consider, but I just want to give you a few to those of you here who are believers in Christ Jesus. First, you are not a slave to generational sin. Verse 4 speaks of the sins of generations. And while the specific curses of the Old Covenant are applied specifically to Israel and are no longer in effect, the curse of sin from Genesis 3 is real. And we've seen sin spread and compound across generations, not only in the history of man, but even in our own family trees. Just as from Cain to Lamech in Genesis 4, remember, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, well, then Lamech's revenge is sevenfold. Or 77-fold. Limitless. Brothers and sisters, how many of your homes, or your marriages, or your families feel the effects of the sins of generations? Those sins which seem to be passed down in your family like heirlooms, addiction, divorce, anger, abuse. When you look at your family tree, it seems to be mostly filled with hurt people hurting other people. Is that your biography? One commentator noted from verse 4, Isn't it interesting that in the many wars of history, nobody ever stands up and says, Hey everybody, I'm firing the first shot. I'm picking this fight. This war is all my fault. Every war, he says, is a counterstrike. All shots are return fire. Redressing a wrong. And where grievances are concerned, every one of us has a long memory and we've got a short fuse. Every person, every home, every culture has ancient ruins creating more ruins. Or as Bob Dylan saying, everything is broken. That is what generational sin does. It's ancient ruins creating more ruins. Friend, is that your biography? I wonder what filled your heart when you first saw the sins of generations manifested in your own life, in your marriage, in your parenting. Things that you swore you would never do, things that you swore you never say, as soon as you do them and as soon as you say them are horrified by the fact that what you once hated has now come out of you. Does it feel like you're doomed to repeat the past? Friend, is there any answer to the devastations of generations? Well, according to verses 1 through 3, there is. That it's not you. It's ultimately Christ for you, and it is Christ in you. That those who are planted by God deeply in the soil of the gospel grow up into what? We saw it at the end of verse 3. They grow up into oaks of righteousness. And verse 4 says that they... You see that? They, they, they. Who are the they? They're the oaks of verse 3. They are the ones, verse 4, that will repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. Beloved, listen to me. If you are in Christ, the devastation of generations in your family can end with you. Christ has proclaimed liberty and freedom over you. And if Christ has set you free, then you are free indeed. Remember that you are an object of divine love and care. You're the planting of the Lord that he might glorify himself in you. You have been freed not only from the penalty of sin. You have been freed from the very power of sin. You are not a slave anymore. You can choose otherwise. 
you can do differently. Not because you're so great, because the power of Christ in you is so great. Do you believe that? You are not a slave to the sins of generations. Second, oh, brothers and sisters, share your testimonies often. (laughs) I was so pleased to see women's testimony night. You're just like making my sermon for me. Share your testimonies often. Consider how many among you once hated God, rejected the gospel, scoffed at the church. And then recall how in verse 5, you were brought by God's grace now to love God and to serve his people. (laughs) Amazing. How some of you once glorified sin and Satan in your music, but now help the church sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs to one another. Or how mouths that once spewed vulgarities and blasphemies now speak truth and love and teach others to obey Christ through discipling relationships in the church. I had coffee recently with a dear brother who wrecked his marriage through selfishness and pride. But God saved him. And God restored his marriage. And now he serves in the church by discipling other Christians to glorify God in their marriages. (laughs) That's how Christ turns the work of Satan in the world upside down. Swords into plowshares. That's what the gospel does. He transforms wolves and shepherds and foes into farmers. Oh, beloved, you need to share your testimonies often. And when you do, you'll find that you strengthen the church. Every single one of you ladies, make an effort to be there that night. That you might see one another grow over time and joy and thanksgiving and zeal in the gospel. Because zeal for the gospel leads us to a third application from verse 6. Brothers and sisters, fulfill your priestly ministry. The ministry of the members of Redeemer Church, just like with North Point Church, as with every other true church, is the twofold ministry of proclamation and prayer. And so when you gather together each Lord's Day to preach and to pray, you fulfill your ministry. In the preaching of God's word, your church is speaking to the world on behalf of God. And in prayer, you're speaking to God on behalf of the world. And then when each one of you scatters into your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in your schools throughout the week, you take this priestly ministry with you of speaking to men about God and speaking to God about men that many in this city might be saved. J.C. Ryle captures well the heart of your priestly ministry. In his book, Old Paths, he writes this. He says, labor hard for the prosperity of the souls of others. Strive to bring a few more with you to heaven by all means to save some. Do something by God's help to make heaven more full and hell more empty. Entreat all to think about their souls. Fulfill your priestly ministry. Proclaim the gospel. Pray for your neighbors that God might save many. Finally, fourthly, serve one another more and more. I know this church to be a serving church. I'm encouraged every February when I come here for Simeon Trust. Brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in doing good. Press on in serving one another. Pray for one another. Martin Luther wrote this. The fact that we are all priests and kings means that each of us Christians may go before God and intercede for the other. If I notice that you have no faith or a weak faith, I can ask God to give you a strong faith. If you have a membership directory printed or in an app on your phone... You might pray for a few members in alphabetical order every day when you read your Bible until you work to the end of your directory and then you start over at the beginning. Just keep doing it over and over. You might even text them that day to say, hey, I prayed from the Bible for you in this way. Or when you gather together on the Lord's Day as we're doing today, you might ask others how you can pray for them. And don't just say, okay, I'll pray for you with the intent to do so later. How many of us have said, I'll pray for you and then forget to pray? Oh, do so right then and there. You might pray specifically that they would be filled with everlasting joy. Or you might pray Jesus' words that their joy and yours would be complete in him. It's the kind of joy that we see manifested in verses 10 to 11. This everlasting joy is expounded upon. So we've considered Christ's liberating mission and we've considered our priestly portion. 
But now, brothers and sisters, let's finish up with a consideration of our enjoyable worship. If verses 1 through 3 were the words of our Savior, then verse 10 is our response to his good news. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, and my soul shall exult in my God. Isaiah's words here are our words. They're the words of once poor sinners in formerly burned out city who have been made by God's grace into a beautiful priestly city. Look at how Isaiah describes our beauty in verse 10, that we are clothed with righteous garments. Those whose sins were as scarlet, as we see at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, are now, quote, the city of righteousness. That's what God promised to do in the opening chapter of Isaiah. I will make you, you broken down, burned out, sinful and rebellious city, I'm going to build from your ashes the city of righteousness. Here, Isaiah sees a vision of the future. Where, by the very power and work of Christ, God's word has come true. He sees a city that is clothed with a robe of righteousness. Only this righteousness isn't ultimately a righteousness that comes from us. We see that in verse 11. It is a righteousness that comes from God. All that language, that agricultural language, it implies that there's something that has come from outside or beyond the earth to make it do what it does. For as the rain falls and the snow falls, so does the Lord send forth his word and it accomplishes all of his purposes. It will not return void. That's the idea here. That it is the Lord God who brings about this righteousness. It's the Lord God that produces this praise. It's all a gift from him to us by faith in Christ. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, the Apostle Paul wrote. And if perfect righteousness then comes from Christ, then, beloved, so does our joy. In verse 11, God will cause praise to sprout up before the nations. Do you remember what Jesus said? Why he wanted us to abide in him? What's the ultimate end result of abiding in Christ, of being in Christ, of his life being in us? It is that his joy might be ours and that our joy might be full. Such that it would erupt in this kind of praise that we see here. So brothers and sisters, what then is the flavor of Christianity if it's not joy? We've seen that it's not just a feeling. That this joy, this everlasting joy, even when we don't feel it, is not ultimately a subjective thing. It is an objective reality rooted in Christ Jesus and you are in him. So whether you feel joy or not, Christ is your joy. And that joy, because it is ultimately rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that joy is indestructible. And though it may appear for the various challenges In difficulties of this life that your joy can be robbed for a momentary time, it can never be completely taken away because it's ultimately in Christ. I pray that the Holy Spirit fills you with this joy. Even now as we've considered Isaiah 61 of how Christ has freed us from sin that we might make God known and here have joy in him forever. Well, brothers and sisters, I can't land the plane any better than Puritan Thomas Brooks. Listen to what he says about joy, and I wonder if you might be able to relate to it. He wrote, The joy of the saints in heaven shall be a lasting joy and uninterrupted joy. But here, that is in this life, here their joy is quickly turned into sorrow. They're singing into sighing. They're dancing into mourning. He says, our joy here is like the farmer's joy in harvest, which is soon over. And then we must sow again in tears before we can reap in joy. Surely there is no believer, but finds that sometimes sin interrupts his joy. 
Sometimes he says Satan disturbs our joy. Sometimes afflictions and sometimes desertions eclipse our joy. Sometimes the cares of the world and sometimes the snares of the world and sometimes the fears of the world mar our joy. Sometimes great crosses, sometimes near losses, and sometimes unexpected changes turn a Christian's harping into mourning and his organ into the voice of those that weep. Surely there is hardly one day in the year, yea, I had said one hour in the day wherein something or other does not fall in to interrupt a Christian's joy. Can you relate to that? But now in heaven, he says, The joy of the saints shall be constant. There shall be nothing to fall in or to disturb or to interrupt their joy. In heaven, there will be no more sin to take away your joy, nor no devil to take away your joy, nor no man to take away your joy. The joy of the saints in heaven is never ebbing, but always flowing to all contentment. The joys of heaven, he says, never fade, never wither, never die, nor never are lessened or interrupted. And so, oh, beloved, when your hearts are sad and sorrowful, oh, think of these everlasting joys that you will have in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray to that end. Father, I confess in my own life, as no doubt my brothers and sisters here would as well, that there is not a day or an hour or a minute where it seems something or other does not interrupt our joy, that doesn't discourage us or distract us. And yet, God, I pray that you would commit by your Holy Spirit the truths of Isaiah 61 in our minds, that you would write them on our hearts, that we would believe them and walk in them, that we would believe that Christ Jesus is, in fact, the one who binds up all of our wounds. And no doubt, God, I know there are many here whose wounds have been bound, but still yet wear jagged and ugly scars from those wounds, the consequences of sin still lingering. God, I pray that you would fill them with a future hope, knowing that even those scars will one day be gone, as you will make all things new. And Father, help us to recall our priestly ministry in Christ, to rejoice in the double portion that we have in him, and that remember That all of this is from a righteousness that doesn't belong to us, but a righteousness that you have given to us in Christ, that we've come to access not by works of the law, but by faith alone. And that through that, I pray that in Christ, we would have his joy and that our joy would be complete and that it would erupt in the kind of praise that would bring many from the nations into your city. God, I pray all of this ultimately for your glory and for the glory of the name of your son, Jesus, among the nations, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.